Well, good afternoon, and thank you so much for being a part of the work that we're trying to do here at the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Thank you for taking your Bibles and opening up to read from God's inspired word in how we can serve him and, as we're going to talk about today, not disappoint our God. We want to be pleasing to our parents. We want to be pleasing to our employers. We even want to be pleasing to law enforcement to keep ourselves out of trouble. And the same is true when it comes to the way that we are pleasing to our God, and we do not want to make him upset or cause him to change his mind about us or to drive him to a place where he relented or where he uh, was upset with us before he relents, as we'll talk today. Thank you so much again for tuning in. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 32, a section in the book of Exodus that is likely familiar to you. The book of Exodus is the story of the exit of God's people from Egyptian bondage, heading to the wilderness for the period of 40 years on their way to the promised land that he promised them. But there were some bumps along the road. There was complaining, there was murmuring, and there was sin in the camp of the people. And that's the record of Exodus chapter 32 that I'd like for us to read together this morning, this afternoon by looking at the first nine verses. And then we'll make some observations about the text that follows. It says that when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain and the people gathered together to Aaron, and they said, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Verse 4 says, he received the gold from their hand. He fashioned it with an engraving tool and he made a molded calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast of the Lord. And they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go, get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worship it and sacrifice to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then we'll pause here after verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen the people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. This is enough to make anybody angry. And God was angry with what was going on down the mountain. In the plains where these people were now fashioning for themselves a God of their own creation, following the pattern of other people that they had known and people that they had witnessed, now creating their own gods. 
And so God had every reason to be angry with these people. Just as a parent might be upset with a child for being disobedient, the heavenly parent was upset with what had transpired in the first nine or ten verses of Exodus chapter 32. And so what does he plan to do? Well, he plans to restart, to do a do-over. And in fact, verse 10, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. But of course, that doesn't happen. And this was probably a test on the part of God with the man that was the great servant of the Lord, Moses, where Moses, in verse 11, pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians be able to say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. And in fact, If you drop down to verse 14, it says, The Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. If you're reading from the New American Standard Bible this morning or this afternoon, it'll say that God changed his mind. And I love the New American Standard rendering where it says the Lord relented. It's where God changed his mind. When God changed his mind, it changed the course of the future of these people. Now, of course, as we talk about frequently in Bible studies and sermons and private conversations, there's nothing that's going to get in the way of God getting his job done and getting his purposes fulfilled. And that was certainly the case here. But I want us to ponder for a moment this afternoon some lessons that we learn about God changing his mind. Some truths that are true then and that are true today about sin. Whether that be creating an idol like the golden calf or whether that be our pride. Whether that be our anger that is inappropriate. There are things that we need to understand that I think are true then that we learn from the scriptures in Exodus 32 or in surrounding passages that are true for us today. I want to share with you a series of four observations this afternoon. And the first of those is this, that when we reduce our trust in God, that when we fail to look at him appropriately and to serve him as our number one priority, it leads us to sin. A failure to trust in God always leads to the greater propensity for sin. Because we understand that God does things in his own way, in his own timetable, and often we are tempted to lose our trust in him. We sing a song in his time, in his time. He makes all things beautiful in his time. We have to realize that God will make things happen in the way that he wants to make them happen. We've been discussing in our Wednesday night Bible class in the stories of Ezra and Esther and in the work of Haggai and soon in Nehemiah, 
where God is working these great plans and his providence is at work, though sometimes shrouded in mystery, unable to be seen by the human eye, at least at the time in which those things are happening. But look, if you would, at the first verse or so of our text, and then we'll go back to Exodus 13 in just a moment, as well as Exodus 24. But here's what I want us to appreciate is that in verse 1, it's very clear to me that the children of Israel, that the followers of God, that the people whom Moses was leading, they gave up on Moses. And more importantly, what they were doing is they were giving up on God. Go back to chapter 24 and look with me, if you would, at verses 3 and 7 to appreciate the context of what it meant to give up on God. Moses came and told the people, Exodus 24, verse 3, all the words of the Lord and all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice. And what did they say? All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Drop down to verse 7, and they say the same thing. All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. They said, we will not give up on Moses. We will not give up on God. We will remain faithful to the end. That was the pledge that they had made shortly before Exodus 32 rolled around. But what changed? Why did they give up on God? Why did they give up on Moses? Because they're human beings. And that's what we do as humans. We sometimes say things that we may mean, but then we give up because we get impatient. And because we reduce our trust in the one who leads us. This idea of giving up on Moses or giving up on God is, I would suggest, an illogical conclusion to come to. Notice, if you would, in verse 1 of the text, it says, we will make other gods, or we want you, Aaron, to make other gods for us. Consider, if you would, Exodus chapter 13 and what happens in verse 21. In Exodus 13, again, backing up in the story of the people of Israel and the people uh, that were following and dutifully serving Moses, at least at times, But there in chapter 13, verse 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way by night in the pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. The reason I point that out is simply this, that God had given them every reason to trust him. And when we reduce our trust in God, it makes for a likely failure to do what God has asked us to do. The same thing that was true then thousands of years ago is the same thing that is true today. That when we get distracted by the world around us, when we get uh, distracted by the sinfulness of the people that surround us or that we go to work with or that we have to associate with, the fact is, is that reduced trust in the Lord leads us to sin. That brings us to a second observation that is equally important and that makes perfect sense to those of us who are students of the Bible, but that when we sin, sin leads to more sin. 
Very rarely do we as human beings sin and then say, you know what, that's it, I'm done with it. I'm not going to do it anymore. Now, there are times when we are growing as Christians and maturing as saints where that may be more likely. But generally speaking, we are weak and frail and prone to sin because we are selfish and prideful and only interested in our own fleshly desires. Satan would, if it were up to him, have us believe that one little sin doesn't matter. But Satan knows that, number one, any sin matters, and number two, that there is a progressive nature of disobedience, that there's something to be said for one little sin, then a little bit bigger sin, then a little bit bigger sin, and then a bigger, bigger sin. Now, of course, as good Bible students and as individuals who appreciate the truth of Scripture, we know that one sin is as big as another. But we do understand that sometimes sin has a way of multiplying itself. Look at the transition uh, from verses 4 to verse 5 here in Exodus chapter 32. Look at how sin has grown. Aaron makes an idol for them in verse 4. That's bad enough. And then what happens is the people say, this is your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So first of all, they've committed idolatry. Now they're committing blasphemy. Then they organized worship that was unauthorized, which did not have the right to transpire in verse 5. And then where it says in verse 5, they built an altar before Aaron made a proclamation, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. If you drop down to verse 6 where it says that they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, most would uh, assume that some sort of sexual immorality or lewd worship was occurring in verses 5 and 6 as they were worshiping the golden calf. You know, I'm guessing if you would have sat down with these people or with Aaron, their de facto leader in the absence of Moses, a few days earlier and said, in a couple of days, you are going to create an idol, blaspheme the Lord, have unauthorized worship, and commit sexual immorality in the context of worshiping a false god. They would have said, come on, no way, we will never do that. Remember how Peter in the New Testament says, I will never, ever, ever deny you, Lord. And then shortly thereafter, because of the pressures that were around him, he denied him once, then twice, then three times. Sin has a way of leading us to sin even more. And that was certainly the case here in Exodus chapter 32. Speaking of sin, that brings us to a third observation, and that is something that we've kind of already talked about, but I want us to spend just a couple of moments thinking about it further. That sin has a way of bringing out the worst in us as men and women. Aaron had already proved himself to be a man of great character. For example, in Exodus chapter 4, if we were to take the time to read verses 14 through 17, we read and learn that Aaron was a significant role player in the plan of the Exodus. 
Remember that back in Exodus chapter 7, as God had promised Moses when Moses was making his series of excuses or reasons why he could not uh, ably go before Pharaoh, that Aaron was the important communicator. He was the voice to go to Pharaoh, where Moses would say, let my people go. And in Exodus chapter 28 or Numbers chapter 17, we read that Aaron was going to be the priestly family, that a great generation of men would come from his genealogy, from his future that would serve in the tabernacle. And so this was a very important person and a very good person. But compare, if you would, that Aaron that we read about in the previous chapters of Exodus with the Aaron that we read about in Exodus chapter 32. Rather than Aaron saying, guys, shame on you for even thinking about giving up on Moses, giving up on God, and how in the world could you ever think about creating a golden calf and an idol when you know all the way back from the beginning that there is one God and only him you shall serve, and you guys pledged On repeated occasions, we will serve God and only serve God. We will only serve God and we will only serve God. You said that over and over and over again. And now you want me to create a golden calf? But Aaron didn't hesitate to give in to the people. And he was the chief designer or architect of the calf. Where did this come from? Apparently, Sin has a way of bringing out the worst in we as men and women. Look, if you would, at verse 4, and I want you to look at three verbs in verse 4. And I believe that these verbs are important because they're three separate words in the original language and three separate words in English. Notice where it says in verse 4 that he received the gold. Now, that's not just a passive reception of gold. It seems to me that he's saying, guys, here we go. Bring me the gold. Go ahead. And he actually says to them, take out the earrings and your ears and your children's ears and bring that gold to me. So it says he received them. That means that he is a participant and more than a participant in this process. Verse 4 goes on to say that he used a tool and he fashioned the calf. And then the Bible says that he made the calf in verse 4. He made a golden or a molded golden calf. Where in the world was the Aaron that in chapters 4, chapter 7, chapter 28 that we read about elsewhere in the Old Testament being the great servant of the Lord, the spokesman for the Lord? That Aaron was gone and was replaced with this Aaron. And again, go back to Peter. Where was the Peter who says, Lord, you will never die because I won't let it happen. And of course, Jesus famously says, get behind me, Satan. You are concerned about your own selfish desires rather than the desires of the kingdom. And so here we have individuals, whether it be Moses, whether it be Peter, whether it be you or whether it be me, 
that say, we will remain strong. As for me and my house, to borrow from Joshua's words in Joshua 24, we will serve the Lord. But sometimes when push comes to shove, we get scared because of the pressures that are around us. We get tempted by the temptations that transpire. And as a result, we give in. And you know what is really disappointing about Aaron, if we were to read on in the story, is that rather than owning up, Aaron does all he can to make excuses. Look, if you would, at verses 22 and following. Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what has become of him. They said, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. I said to them, and they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and voila, this calf came out. I mean, just the silliness, strike that, the sadness of the excuses that he is making. You know, what would have been nice is if for Aaron to say, you know what, I am so sorry, Moses. I am so sorry, Lord, for what I have done. So that's true about sin. It brings out the worst in us. And finally, speaking of sin, it brings future consequences. You know, when we go to God and say, I've sinned, I'm sorry. I will not do that anymore. Please forgive me. He forgives us. Scripture says he remembers those sins no more. But that doesn't mean that there may not be consequences to our sins. Sometimes there are legal consequences to our sins. Sometimes there are societal consequences. Sometimes there are familial consequences to our sin. Sometimes there are financial consequences to our sin. The focus of Israel and that which should be the focus of all of us is to worship God and to put him first. And here's what happens. In order to sin, back in Exodus 32, in order for this golden calf to be molded, to be created, to be brought into existence, the people had to give up their gold. Little did they know that God had a plan for that gold that we need to appreciate. Fast forward, if you would, to Exodus chapter 35 and verse 22. Exodus 35 and verse 22. Came, they came, both men and women, as many had a willing heart. And what did they bring for the tabernacle? They brought their jewelry. They brought earrings, nose rings, rings, necklaces, jewelry of gold. That is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. Even if people's attitudes were perfect, it's impossible that they were able to give as they should have. Because so much of that gold that would have been used for the tabernacle had been wasted in the way in which they violated God's scripture and God's command that thou shalt have no other God before me. You will not create a molded image. You shall not worship any God except me. And so Moses intercedes. 
as he does on so many occasions and says, Lord, please do not destroy them. Please do not start over. Please use me as your instrument of righteousness to do what is right, to train these people, and to teach them to act accordingly. The fact is, is the scriptures here tell us that the Lord relented or the Lord changed his mind. God's anger was warranted, but it was reduced or put at bay by two key things. One was the overt insistence on the part of Moses when he says, do not destroy the people. Don't allow the Egyptians to say, ha, they were rescued from here, but they went out in the wilderness or out in the mountains to die. He says, don't let that happen. Allow your promise to be fulfilled. And then secondly, not just the insistence of Moses to not destroy the people, but let's give God the credit for the fact that he has this inherent grace where he loves his people deeply and dearly and does not want them to be destroyed. You know, I get the picture that when Moses says, please do not destroy them, God immediately says, I'm not going to destroy them. I think in part, God was using this as an opportunity to test the metal, the sincerity, the love of someone like Moses. I mean, can you imagine what would have happened if in Exodus 32, God would have said, I'm going to destroy the people. Moses says, good, let's do it. Let's get right to it. I mean, what does that say about the character of Moses? What does that say about the character of God that we serve? Which brings us then to these two very simple conclusions this afternoon. And that is we need to be thankful for grace that comes from God. And we must always be mindful of sin. Because sin was at the heart of Exodus chapter 32. And sin is at the heart of the choices that we make when we disobey our Lord. But yet God changed his mind. He relented because of the insistence of Moses. And I would submit in part larger because of his love, because of his grace, because of his compassion, because of his kindness. That's the God that we serve. And we are thankful to serve such a loving, gracious, compassionate and forgiving God. That's the God that we serve at Northfield Boulevard. That's the God that we invite you to serve as well. If you're not a Christian, we are asking you to highly consider making a change in your life by becoming a child of God, by being adopted into his family and added to the church, which is all the things that happen when you are baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And God will accept you, forgive you, and wash away those sins to be remembered no more. We would welcome the opportunity to help you in that process, to study, to figure out what needs to happen in your life, or if you're at the place where you're ready to become a child of God, to baptize you this very day.
You can go to our website, contact us there, and we are ready to assist you. We also want to encourage our fellow brothers and sisters that just because we are brothers and sisters, just because we are children of God doesn't make us immune from temptation, nor does it make it so that we are not going to sin. The fact is, is you may be involved in sin and you may need to correct it. You may be rebellious in the way that these people were. No, you're not making any golden calf in your backyard to bow down to. But it could be that your job, it could be that another person, it could be that your wealth are the gods that you are serving today. And you need to make a correction. And if that correction is such that either A, involves the church so that the church's reputation has been harmed because of your sinful ways, or B, it's private. That is between you and God and no one else knows about it. You have the power by prayer, to go to God and say, I'm sorry, I want to do better, and he will forgive you if you pledge to repent and truly work to be better. If we can help you in any way, please let us know. Thank you for taking the time to tune in and to be a part of what we're doing here at Northfield Boulevard. We bid you a good day, and we hope to see you again here next week. Thanks for your time.